I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Titus. Once again, to the book of Titus. As I mentioned last week, those of you who are here, we are in between book studies here at Ascension. Normally, what I like to do and what I do do is uh, preach uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, We are going to get there. Someone asked me again this morning if I had chosen a book, and uh, I haven't. We're going to get there, uh, but uh, still prayerfully considering. But I'm using this this interlude between books and the freedom that it gives me uh, to preach on some topics from God's Word that are happening in the life of our church. For instance, last week with the ordination and installation of Bo Stockland, preaching on the local church, as well as just preaching on things that, I, that are issues that I've been thinking about and, and wrestling with um, in my own heart and mind. So this morning, I kind of want to stay in the lane uh, of where we were last week by returning to this, this ancient letter that Paul wrote to a young first century church planner stuck on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, establishing the early church post-Jesus' resurrection. So last week we looked at Paul's words to this young pastor, and we made the points that local church matters. The local church matters, and not just the local church matters, but the leadership within the local church matters, and specifically the elders that lead the local church must be those who bleed gospel. Well, today as Paul writes to Titus and fleshes out more of what the church ought to be, painting this portrait of a healthy church. He fixes his sights on you now, you, the congregation, and he hones in on your role within the local church. And this was particularly needed on the island of Crete, an island that we learn from this book it was known, it's a culture that was known for its laziness, its, its gluttony, its wickedness. And that's going to be hard for us to relate as modern Americans. Paul writes to this co-laborer in the gospel, instructing the church how to live as the church in a world of deceit and gluttony and downright wickedness. It's a message that certainly has some cultural specifics to it, but it's a message that I think is as timely for us today as it was for them in the first century. So listen as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through, I'm actually going to stop at verse 8, that was my fault, not Rena's, but if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Paul says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too, too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I may have told you this at some point in the years that I've been here, but Growing up as a pastor's kid in a small church, I had lots of aunts and uncles, lots of older brothers and older sisters. I'm putting those in quotes because it wasn't that my immediate family was in my church or my extended family was was local but it was precisely because they weren't. There was Uncle Frank who who liked action movies like I did and let me watch them with him in his living room. His wife, Aunt Angel, taught me how to dive in her swimming pool. My older brother, Dennis, taught me how to drive a stick in his little Mazda. And then there was Aunt Liz and Uncle John who taught me the truths of the faith from when I was a little boy all the way through my senior year. And none of these people I was biologically related to, and yet they were my family. They were my aunts and and uncles. And it's for that reason that I like for, for us, I'd like to hear at APC a bit more familial language, even as we address one another, not because it's nostalgic or, or sentimental for me, but because it's biblical, because it expresses a reality, a reality that's becoming increasingly hard to express in a mobile, spread out culture and a busy culture such as ours. But it expresses something that I think this passage pushes us towards. Thinking and growing as the family of God. Or to put it another way, from our mission statement, being a community of worshiping, if I could just take a liberty, being a family of worshiping, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus. Because there is gospel power in community, because in gospel community within the family of God there is power, I want God's Word to move us and to prod us this morning even further from this consumer mentality about church to an intentional, disciplined investment in the lives of others. And so I want to begin this morning, just just begin to set before you a vision for discipleship, a vision for making disciples. This passage doesn't say everything, but it says something. And I'm not going to try to not say more than it says, but to at least say what it says. 
So there's just one truth that I want to put before you, and then we'll build a couple things underneath that, and it's simply this. We, brothers and sisters, we are called to grow together as the family of God. We are called to grow together as the family of God. And so what I want you to hear from that is that you have a responsibility towards self for your own growth in grace, for your own personal holiness, but you also have a responsibility for others to some degree. Last week, we spoke about, I spoke about elders' bleeding gospel. Well, this week, in a sense, I'm saying we all must bleed gospel. And we all must be transfusing that, if I could stick with that bloody language, we, we must be transfusing that to, to one another. Paul writes to his co-laborer Titus, and he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is not just doctrine that is true, but as some of your Bibles note, there's a little footnote there. Paul uses a Greek word here from the verb to be healthy, a word that's used in the Gospels when it describes someone who has been healed. And so this is a doctrine for a life lived as God intended. intended. The, the Cretans were looking for a life of fulfillment, of, of satisfaction, of, of blessing for an ideal life. But they, like our modern day culture, they're looking in all the wrong places. They're looking at all the wrong things. And so Paul says to Titus, this is gospel life that's not some burdensome religious code, something that's meant to bury you on your Christian pilgrimage. No, this is a life of joy, a life of blessing that flows from union with Jesus, and that's where it all begins. It begins in the gospel. It begins in our gospel identity that we've been singing about, that I proclaim to you. We are sons and daughters of the Most High, adopted into His family by our elder brother Jesus, and His grace, His life, His death, His resurrection, His example is now ours. And so we have a life that needs to be caught, a life that needs to be taught, a life that needs to be passed down, a a life that needs to be modeled, and a life that needs to be mentored. And sure, that happens to some degree right here, right now. We believe in the means of grace. We believe in, in, in the proclaimed Word of God. We believe in, in the sacraments. We believe in equipping one another in groups, in classroom settings, all of that is good, but what I want to focus on and, and turn the screws on a little bit is the relational support that must undergird all of those things that we do corporately. Because let me just say this, frankly, some of you are way too disconnected from the relational life of the body. And so, Paul addresses these specific groups, and I want to work through them for just a few minutes real briefly and talk about them. There's something in here for everyone, 
First, he addresses fathers in the faith, I'm going to call them, older men. Fathers in the faith who are to model and to mentor as, as pillars in the church. Our first question maybe is, is what exactly is an older man? It's a pretty broad category to make many to make matters more difficult, we live in a culture that, that glorifies youth. Many want to shy away from the label that you are now an older man. But according to the Bible, older men and older women, it's a seat of honor. It's a place of honor. And the Scriptures often associate it with with gray, the color, gray. Proverbs twenty twenty nine. the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. And so what kind of things ought to characterize, if we're going through some of the family of God and some of the segments of the family of God that are represented even here in this room, what are some of the things that ought to characterize the fathers of the faith, the fathers of our family, the, the pillars in our church community? Well, just three. First of all, seriousness. These are men who, like Moses in Psalm 90, have experienced the frailty of life. Right? They, don't, they don't feel as invincible as they once felt. There's more urgency. There isn't as much time to, to play around, to, to mess around, to dilly-dally. There are important things to be about in life. And so our fathers in the faith ought to be serious that's the first thing. They're rocks in the community. That's the second thing. This is not a modern-day bravado. This is not like the rock. These are those who are steady and self-controlled, a gentle kind of, of dignity. They've seen a lot of years. They have a lot of scars, and they don't get easily rattled. And then lastly, not just are they serious, not just are they rocks of our community, but they are sound in faith and love. They're steadfast. The many years that they've experienced the mountains and valleys of their lives, the suffering and joy that they've experienced, witnessing those who have come and gone, produces a reliability, a trust, and a steadiness that makes Christ look so glorious. Brothers and sisters, we have some of these men here. And I, as a young man, if I can put myself in that category for just a few more years, I, as a young man, have benefited greatly from them. Too easily in our culture, as likely was the case in Crete, we see older men squandering their last years, living for themselves, trying to revive their youth. And Paul says to Timothy, adorn the gospel by the grace he gives, by glorying in these realities about who you are. Don't be ashamed, but be proud. And not only that, but encourage the younger. Verse 6, 
urge the younger men. I don't think Paul's just talking to Titus as a pastor, but he's talking to all these older men, these pillars of our community, you who have been there, who have done that, who have made the mistakes and learned from them, to encourage younger men to speak to us. Samuel Miller, 19th century pastor, long time ago, says this, Whenever, wherever you reside, endeavor always to acquire and maintain an influence with young men. They are the hope of the church and of the state, and he who becomes instrumental in imbuing imbuing their minds with sentiments of wisdom, virtue, and piety is one of the greatest benefactors of his species." They are, therefore, worthy of your special and unwearied attention. In short, employ every Christian method of attaching them to your person and to your ministry and of inducing them to take an early interest in the affairs of the church. That was written hundreds of years ago. It's still true today, more so maybe today. We are called to grow together is the family of God. Older men being pillars, encouraging the younger. And then he moves on, doesn't he? He talks then next to some of our women. Mothers in the faith. Mothers in the faith who are called to model and to mentor as nurturers. Those who nurture And Paul hones in on two things that were a particular problem on the island of Crete that certainly find their way in our day and age as well, slander and too much wine. And God calls Christian women to something different. He calls them to be focused on nurturing And in a world that seeks to blur and to blend and to diffuse and to downplay uh, gender differences, women, older women, this is your glory. This is your unique reflection of the heart and character of God. That you are nurturers. Let me say just a few things on this point, and this applies to the older men that I just spoke of as well. Some of you are thinking, I'm older, but I don't have anything to offer. The fact is you do. Don't believe that lie. Maybe you don't have a resume of triumphs. Maybe your resume is just filled with failures, but you're here, and you've been faithful, and you've learned from that. You've been giving an experience that's not meant to be hoarded, but meant to be passed on. And then the second thing I would say is, before moving on, and I've said this before in other contexts, I've said this as, as anyone asked me, what, what's, what's the greatest thing you've learned, Nate, in your, 15, for, in your first 15 years of ordained pastoral ministry? What's, what's the greatest thing you've learned? I always say this, don't assume anything about people. We assume way too much about people. We assume that one another specifically, that everybody's okay. 
And, and part of it's our fault because we come in here with a nice smiley face and, and, and a mask and we don't really let people in. So I'm not putting all of the blame on you who don't know, but we assume a lot that there isn't a lot of pain, that there isn't a lot of wounds, that there isn't a lot of need. God calls the church not to a hands-off approach like the world insists, just leave me alone. It's my life, it's my truth. But to a community centered around the gospel, to a family growing together in grace. We all love our affinity groups and we need our affinity groups, but we need more than simple peer interaction. Young women, young men, whether you recognize it or not, you need to begin to recognize that hanging out with older people is something you need to do. The psalmist declared in Psalm 71, 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. And so as we think about older women, we have some of these as well in our midst. And they are a gift. And so the question I have before us that I want us to ponder and consider is, are we being intentional with one another? Older men, older women, pillars and nurturers, why not choose a younger person, a younger man or a younger woman that you can press into, that you can have coffee with once a month, that you can pray with, that you can read God's Word with, that you can share life and stories and experiences with? Some of you are doing it, but some of you are not. And I know we're all busy, we're all distracted, but God's call is for us to live together, to grow together as the family of God. Mothers in the faith model and mentor as nurturers. And then he goes on to talk about the next generation, younger women. Younger women receive nurture, and how are we going to sum up these words, words that maybe sounded, whoo, all right, he's going to go there, huh? Younger women, receive nurture and make your homes a priority. Let me say it that way. Make your homes a priority. What exactly is Paul calling for here in these words? We know that this is a hot button issue. It wasn't long ago when Ann Romney, wife of Mitt, who was running for president, was accused of never working a day in her life. Remember that? Because she was a stay-at-home mom, and it created quite a firestorm. So what's Paul calling us to do? What's Paul calling younger women to do? To, to know their place? Is he just a, a chauvinist in a patriarchal culture that's completely out of touch with modern sensibilities? I would say No. What Paul recognized, what the Bible affirms and proclaims, is the central importance of family 
in God's design for the world and the prominent role that women play in that as those whose glory is nurturers. It's interesting to note that in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, there was a serious lack of concern for the family, so much so that Augustus the emperor passed a law recognizing the debilitating effects this was having on his empire. He passed a law that penalized Romans who didn't marry or have legitimate children. Now, of course, there's problems with that, but it illustrates the context and the heightened urgency in which Paul writes. And we see some of that in our own day. The breakdown of families has caused a lot of societal grief in our day and age. And so what God is calling older women to teach the younger women is rather than despising the home, as some do in the culture, love the home. Make the home a priority. Don't believe the lie that your identity is solely found outside of the home. But that also doesn't mean that your only identity is in the home. The Proverbs 31 woman, we've talked about her. She was a a businesswoman, yet she did not neglect her home. Lydia was a traveling sales rep. Deborah led the whole nation of Israel. It doesn't mean all women need to be like these, but it does mean that women need to make the home a priority regardless of what she does outside of it, that it might proclaim to the culture God's design and the importance. Now, I recognize that to a group this big, there are those who in God's providence have not been called as moms. Your callings are not specifically to children. God doesn't address all of your works that He has laid out for you to walk in, but let me just assure you that God has not forgotten you, and He has not forgotten your glory, and He has not forgotten the places that you will serve and bring honor and glory to Him. Well, finally, we need to wrap this up. Finally, let's move to young men. Young men, control yourselves. Chill out, guys. Chill out. One exhortation is given for the young man, and it starts at the, or it strikes at the heart of that stage of life, right? Young men, they are enthusiastic. They are strong. They are energetic. Those are all positives, but they also are arrogant, (laughs) they're ambitious, they're greedy, and they're prone to sexual temptation. And our culture and our marketing in this modern world, as well as in the culture of Crete, fuels this and prolongs it, where some older men are trying to be young men forever. And the gospel teaches and Paul teaches to Titus, it says, as you grow together as the life of the church, young men, you need to fight against what the culture dangles before your eyes. 
There's a great little book. I've taken young men through it before in my ministry. Again, it's written by an old dead guy. These old dead guys knew what they were talking about. J.C. Ryle, 19th century pastor, and he says, he says this. I'll just read a little uh, excerpt from this, from this book. He says, for another thing, remember that it is possible to be a young man and serve God. Did you hear that? It is possible to be a young man and to serve God. I fear the snares that Satan lays for you on this point. I fear lest he succeed in filling your minds with the vain notion that to be a true Christian in youth is impossible. I've seen many carried away by this delusion. I've heard it said you are acquiring impossibilities and expecting so much religion from young people. Youth is no time for seriousness. Our desires are strong, and it was never intended that we should keep them under control as you wish us to do. God meant for us to enjoy ourselves. There will be time for religion later on. And this kind of talk is only too much encouraged by the world. The world is only too ready to wink at youthful sins. The world appears to take it for granted that young men must sow their wild oats. Good words from hundreds of years ago to young men And of course, in this church, we have sought to create an environment and a culture where our young men and women recognize that this is their church, that this is their life in Christ, that this is their community, that this is their family. And that what we're doing here and what I'm saying here is not something just for mom and dad not just for gray hairs, but for all of us. And so the flip side for young men, you've got a lot. We've got a lot of young men in here. Your energy, your enthusiasm are a gift, and we've seen it in this church. Continue to press towards it, continue to strive for it, but also listen to your fathers in the faith. Hang out with some old guys, not just dad, but some other old guys. Grow together as the family of God. I hope to talk more about this, but I hope you have begun, just begun to catch the vision. What we've talked about here this morning, it's it's evangelism because it's contrary to what the world sees, its values, its methods, but it's also discipleship. Passing on to the next generation the ways of the Lord. Pressing in with each other intentionally. Life on life. Learn from me as I have learned from Christ. This is the way the church ought to be. Growing together as the family of God. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the admonition this morning to so many seasons of life, so many segments of even our church. Thank you for the diversity that you've placed in this body as you have given us pillars of the faith. You have given us older women to to nurture and to guide, younger women to, to follow, young men to follow. 
Father, I pray that increasingly so, we would see the need, we would have the desire, we would have the courage and boldness to press in to each other's lives, to be maturing, multiplying disciples for your glory and for your honor. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.